Hello, church family. Great to be with you today as we continue our sermon series in the book of James. Today, we're going to be teaching through chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, as Nicole read for you earlier. Early in our marriage, unfortunately, I lost money on several investment schemes. I fell for two of them in particular that were to help me make easy money. You ever been there? I had such a desire for wealth and comfort that I was easily duped or conned into investing what I thought would help me pursue my dreams. Most of you have fallen for some type of scam, something that is too good to be true. We've been duped or conned into believing that if we just had a bigger, better, additional, younger something or somebody we would be happy. We're particularly vulnerable to give in to these temptations in the midst of a trial, big or small, but maybe in particular small, the everyday trials of life is where we find ourselves vulnerable in giving in to the desires of our flesh. Trials expose wrong or unhealthy desires. We all have blind spots that open us up to temptation and sin. How well do you know yourself? Are you aware of your fleshly desires that might give birth to sin? Are you aware of your blind spots? Are you aware of the trials of life that can bring greater temptations to sin? Last week, we looked at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 13. And James encouraged us to count it all joy or consider it all joy when we encounter trials of various kinds. And his exhortation wasn't an emotionless one to just suck it up and be happy or joyful in the midst of your suffering. It was a call to count it all joy because of what God wants to produce in us on the other side of the trials. Trials of all kinds, big and small, are opportunities for the Lord to uh, deepen our faith and to purify our hope. And we can experience joy in trials of various kinds knowing that He is with us through every step of the way and that He cares deeply for us and for our pain and suffering, no matter how big or how small the trial is. Last week, we were also reminded that when we lack the strength and wisdom To persevere in the trial, we can ask. And God not only listens, but He gives wisdom and strength generously and without reproach. Today, in in today's passage, James gives us an up-close and personal look at the heart of man and how easily we're deceived, especially in the heat of trials. Trials can either be a petri dish, if you will, that grows a deeper faith in the Lord and purifies our hope, or it can be a petri dish where our trials can be an environment where sin grows. It's important to remember that James is writing to believers. He's writing this to Christians who are experiencing some type of trial, trials of various kinds, not a specific trial. He knows that every human being is subject to trials, 
of various kinds. Do you remember the definition I gave last week of a trial? It's the loss of something that we value or something that we need. All trials, big and small, involve the loss of someone or something. Last week we talked about God's purpose for our pain and that He desires to deepen our our relationship with Him, our faith in Him, and to purify our hope. And I want to just take just a minute, maybe 30 seconds, to describe in further detail what I mean by a deeper faith and a purified hope. He created you and I for a relationship with Him. He caused us to be born again so that we can partake in that relationship that we were created for. He told His disciples that there would be trouble in this world, but we could take heart that He's overcome the world. So when we experience a loss of trials, God is there. And He's there to fill whatever hole was left because of that loss. And inside of that trial, we learn to trust Him in new ways. And we get to experience His kindness and His nearness and His mercies that are new every day. Additionally, He purifies our hope by reminding us that that anything good on this earth is merely a shadow of better things to come. So the more we lose here, the more we long to be home with our God. Have you ever observed an older saint, somebody that has walked with Jesus for a lot of years? Maybe they've had a lot of loss in their life. They long to be with Jesus in ways that I can't even fathom, but that I long for at some point. Well, I want to long for it now. But there's just something about older saints. In this section of Scripture that we're going to teach through today, James cautions us to be aware of what trials can expose or produce in us. Trials of various kinds will confront Christians you and I, with the temptation to sin. In this short letter, James gives over 50 imperatives. Not suggestions, but commands. And we know that gospel imperatives, uh, excuse me, gospel indicatives, let me say it again, imperatives without gospel indicatives is merely moralism. So it's important to be reminded that he's speaking to Christians who are already fully loved and accepted by their Creator. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Temptation is not sin. I want to get that out of the way right up front, that temptation is not sin. But temptation seeks to entice us to sin by the promise of pleasure or gain. And James says, let no one say when he is tempted. Not if he is tempted, but when he is tempted. Every single human being, those who um, are saved by grace through faith and those who have yet to repent from their sins, are tempted. Temptation does not go away. You see, brothers and sisters, we are at war with sin. 
And even though the power and the penalty of sin has been defeated, we still wrestle with our flesh. The flesh is against the Spirit. So the first thing to be aware of today is you will be tempted. And then in the second half of verse 13, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. Well, God may test or prove His loved ones in order to strengthen and and give us a deeper faith. He never tempts us toward the sin that He died for. Literally, this means that God is untemptable. Tempting his image bearers to sin is not in his nature at all. Every trial, small and big, carries temptations with it. These temptations or these trials can entice us to sin from our own sinful nature, not from God. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Desire does not always have a bad meaning in the Scriptures. But here, in James verse 14, as most often in in the New Testament, it refers to a fleshly, selfish, illicit desire. And while the word often describes uh, specifically um, sexual passion or sexual desire, the use of the singular here, desire, suggests a much broader connotation. Most of the time when the Bible is speaking to believers, it describes these desires as the way that we formerly walked, before we were born again, before we were saved. Let me give you just a couple of examples from Scripture. Um, both of them are from one from Paul, one from Peter. Ephesians 4.22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Peter says this in 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through His promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Get this, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. James' focus here is on our fleshly desires that when left unchecked can bear the fruit of sin. His focus is not on the temptation of Satan here. I want to make that clear. He's going to get to that in chapter 4. Trials have a way of revealing the sinfulness of our heart. And it's in knowing ourselves and our fleshly desires that we can resist temptation, and resist the devil. So James wants us to understand that it's, it's our desires, our fleshly desires that left unchecked can breed sin. Trials have a way of revealing our heart. And it's in knowing ourselves and our fleshly desires that we can resist temptation. I want to say it again. Temptation comes as surely as dandelions come 
to our long lawns in the springs in Colorado. The evil desire tugging away at you and I, God's children, is our own. The evil desire that is causing us to give in to temptation and sin, it's our own desires. It's no one else's fault. It's not the fault of our parents. It's not the fault of our spouse. It's not the fault of our coworkers. It's not the fault of our current circumstances. It's not the fault of Satan. The devil did not make you do it. And it's certainly not the fault of God. Every year, um, as, as many of you know, I, I, working out is a passion of mine. It's a way that, um, that I can kind of delay the decay, the, the inevitable decay of my um, face and my body. I'm just trying to slow it down if God would be so kind. But every year I'd like to um, work hard on, on my weaknesses in the gym. And I want to improve on my standing in the annual CrossFit Open competition. But every year when the Open rolls around, they inevitably program a movement that either I am horrible at or I can't do at all. But the, the, the entire year before, I did not work on my weaknesses at all. I just kind of prayed that they would not program things that would expose my weaknesses. And my standing from year to year is about the same. And I can't blame my lack of progress on um, the time of year that the Open comes or the workouts that they program. I can't blame it on our gym The only thing that I can blame it on is my lack of diligence or motivation to improve. The open, the CrossFit open, exposes my weaknesses, but it's not the cause of my weaknesses. Let me give you another example. When a child gets a failing grade on a test, after not studying diligently, he can't blame the failure on the teacher or he can't blame the failure on the material, or even on the exam itself. The exam was the occasion for failure, but it was not the cause. The same is true with the relationship with our desires and sin. My circumstances might be the occasion for sin, but my circumstances are not the cause for sin. My fleshly, it's my fleshly desires, when allowed to remain dormant, if you will, that, that, that are born when the trial hits. So I have fleshly desires, you have fleshly desires, and oftentimes our fleshly desires, like weeds in the wintertime, are dormant. And then when that trial hits, it exposes our fleshly desires. So instead of blaming God or anyone else for that matter, we need to take a look no further than our own deceptive hearts. And this is what Jeremiah has to say in chapter 17, verse 9. He says that the heart of all of humanity is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You see, brothers and sisters, we are both the agent and the victim of our desires. We truly are our own worst enemy. 
James wants us to know ourselves and our fleshly tendencies so well that it doesn't give birth to sin, which can destroy us or kill us. The question for me and the question for you is, what is temptable in me? What is temptable in me? Before praying that, um, that Satan would not tempt you, and he will, it might be good to know what's temptable in us. What are the desires that, when conceived, give birth to sin? What hole do you have in your life that you are being tempted to fill with sinful endeavors? Verse 15. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Our fleshly desires, when left unchecked, conceives and gives birth to sin as assuredly as conception gives birth to a baby. Few people, few people over the years that I've known um, want to be addicted to you name it, to alcohol, to prescription medication, to drugs, to stealing, to cheating, to lying, to pornography. Nobody sets out um, and wanting to be addicted to it. Nobody wants a divorce on their wedding day. Nobody sets out wanting to be an adulterer. As the song says, it's a slow fade. It always starts off pretty innocently. You just take a quick glance or maybe a second glance. You steal something small. You tell a harmless lie. Just a sip of alcohol. Just an innocent conversation with the opposite sex by the copier. When we reach out and touch sin, it has the tendency to suck you in all the way. I was thinking about one of those big, um, in Colorado we have these um, cottonwood trees that don't have a long lifespan. And you'll see these crews out cutting big branches off of it, and then they throw them in the grinder. And this is kind of gross, but there was a uh, story not that long ago in Loveland, actually, where one of these tree workers got his sleeve caught in there, and it sucked. Before they knew it, it sucked them all the way through and all the way out the other side. That's what sinned us. Sin, just a taste of it, just a touch of it, it sucks you in all the way. Sin, when it's fully grown, leads to death. And this is the language that God spoke to Adam in the garden in Genesis 2. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. We have so much freedom and liberty as Christians. There's so much to enjoy that won't harm us. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that one tree you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. James says, sin, when it's fully grown, leads to death. Paul says in Romans 3.23 that the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. 
Sin has eternal consequences for the unrepentant sinner. It leads to eternal separation from their creator and eternal suffering. But James is writing to Christians who by grace have been saved from eternal death and brought into a relationship with their creator. And we get to embrace the second half of Romans 3.23. But the free gift of God, from God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what might this statement mean for Christians? And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. In the same way that a weed or a dandelion or cancer, if I might, grows bigger and destroys, so does sin. Sin destroys families. Sin destroys relationships and marriages and nations. And your happiness and your joy. It's important to note that most of us don't seek out to destroy our lives. James is telling us here to kill sin, to mortify its sin before it even surfaces. And we do that by knowing our proclivities, to know our tendencies, to know our desires before they conceive sin. And one of the ways that God does that in His kindness by, is by giving us trials. Because it exposes our fleshly desires. You know, my wife is a gardener. And uh, I went out in the backyard today, actually. And uh, she's talking on the phone to her little granddaughter and she's picking weeds. Like, who does that? Like, I just want to, like, just get some type of heavy chemical and just spray it all over the place. But she, she pulls them up one weed at a time. And you, you, here's what you don't do with a weed. You don't kill the weed by pulling off the top or mowing over it. You kill the weed by getting all the way down to the root and yanking it up. And sometimes pulling dirt up um, that's under it and around it. If you don't eradicate the weed, roots and all, when it springs up, when spring comes, the next thing you know that your entire yard is dandelion infested. I've driven by a few of your yards this week, and you, some of you need to start pulling weeds. Sometimes Nancy tells me it's like Groundhog Day for weeds, where she is getting uh, M80s and um, bombs and dynamite, and she's trying to blow those weeds out of the ground. She says, sometimes, Danny, when you um, get that one weed, you got it all at the root and everything, um, another weed uh, pops up. So it's not just a one-time event. Um, this time of year, to extend this metaphor forward, it's an everyday examination. It's the same with skin cancer. I've had skin cancer a couple times. If you've ever had skin cancer, what they do is they say they want to take out the margins. Like I had a little spot on my shoulder, and, I, and when he was done, I thought that he had amputated my left arm. They take the entire margin um, around the, the little uh, cancer, um, around it and below it. And if they don't do that, and if it's not caught early, it spreads. So if we want to understand how to um, 
minimize, if you will, and resist temptation, we need to know ourselves and our fleshly desires that will give birth to sin. Where do you start, you might ask? It's a good question. The first place you start is you start by asking the one who sees every intention of your heart. The one that loves you the most and the one that knows you the most. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 139, 23 through 24. He prays out to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Wait, wait. try me? Give me a trial? And know my thoughts? And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting? He's given God permission. Um, not that God needs permission, but, but show me. Show me anything in me that's wicked. And if you need to give me some trials to expose that so that the roots are exposed and they can be eradicated, God, do it because I desire in my life what you desire in my life, holiness. And our amazing, loving God will answer that prayer with kindness and gentleness. And he will show you of the affections and desires that you have for other things that are interfering with your relationship with him and your ultimate happiness. He will allow trials in order to deepen your faith, to purify your hope, and to expose the desires that can lead to sin. So let him. Let him deepen your faith. Let him purify your hope. Run to him. Don't run to other false gods that promise happiness but only deliver disappointment. Paul had some timely words for us to go along with James. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14, he says, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I don't care um, who you are. I don't care how much you know. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord. Paul says, take heed lest you fall. Be aware of your sinful desires. Then he goes on to say, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That, That whatever you're being tempted by, It's common to all of humanity. I don't know if that's supposed to bring comfort, but what it means is that we're all tempted in the same way. And and we all have the same way out. He says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved... Flee from idolatry. You see, the way of escape, um, he's not going to do a hostile takeover on you. He says that when you see desires welling up that are going to be conceived into sin, run. Kill it. Uproot it. And then in verse 16, James gives these gentle words 
to believers in that first century and to you and I who are prone to fleshly desires. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James instructs these Christians not as someone above them, but as his brothers and sisters in Christ whom he loves. He wants nothing more than for these brothers and sisters to experience joy in the Lord, always, but particularly in the midst of trials of every kind. He's saying, my beloved brothers and sisters, I want you to know the happiness that is found in your sure hope of your inheritance. So don't be deceived. Know yourself. Know your fleshly desires. Know that sin promises, that the promise of sin will always lead to destruction and death. And don't be deceived. Don't do this on your own. Ask the Lord to search you and to try you. So James has encouraged us in these last few verses to know ourselves. But now more importantly in verses 17 and 18, he's going to remind us to know our God. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The changeableness, if I can use that word, of creation is frequently used to highlight by contrast the unchangeableness of God, the unchanging nature of our Creator. Every created thing must necessarily undergo change, for that's its property or its character, if you will. But the unchangeableness is a character of God and God alone. Even the very good gifts of the heavenly lights, the stars, the sun, the moon, they change, they shift. I was reading my book on, on my back porch one day this week, and, um, and as I was sitting there, it got later in the day, and we have these lights that hold, uh, these poles that hold our lights. Next thing you know, I've got a shadow going right down my face. And I had to move because I wanted to be in the sun. Probably not good for my skin cancer. But I moved, and I was uh, to get back in the sun. And you know, with God, <laughs> He is unchangeable. So you were always um, in His light. The things that He created may change and shift. They may let us down. In fact, might I say this? At some point in time, everything that he's created will let us down in one way, shape, or form. They may even crush our heart. But the creator of all good gifts never changes, never shifts. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His mercies are new and unchanging every day. His steadfast love endures forever. Great is thy faithfulness. All of his good gifts produce a shadow of some kind. 
All of his good gifts provide a, a shadow or produce a shadow that point to something and someone better. They're, given, they're good gifts given by our good daddy to whet our appetite for the full meal that we will be receiving and enjoying in glory. If you just take a minute and maybe even do this as a family or friends after you listen to this sermon, is think of countless gifts that God has given to all human beings through, through and by His common grace. Give you a fuel, taste, smell, sight, the embrace of a warm hug, children, grandchildren, marriage. Just some aspects of God's common grace that is available for all human beings, whether they know Him or not. But when Christians think of God's greatest gift, it's the gift of salvation. It's the gift of new life. The gift that defines God's children. The gift that meets every desire. Verse 18, of His own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. The greatest gift, the new birth. By the word of truth, the gospel, we were brought forth. We were literally born again. And he didn't leave it to chance. It wasn't by accident. It says of his own will, he purposed us to be saved. He willed that we be given new birth. And he brought us forth as a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Those he saved by grace, through faith, in that first century, and in every day since then, all that have been restored to a right relationship with him, we're the first fruits. And today and tomorrow and next year and every day before he comes back again, he's going to bring more in. And he's going to do it by the proclamation of the word of truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I want you to listen as we get ready to close here. And I can't fake you. I could fake you if you were alive here, but you can actually see how many minutes are left on the video. So you'll know if I'm kidding or not. That dawned on me the other day when I was going like 47 minutes on last week's sermon. And if I don't get to the script, we're going to go even longer here today. He brought us forth as a kind of first fruits of his, of his creatures. That is, um, brought to salvation. Listen how the New Living Translation says it. And we, out of all creation, have become his prized possession. That's what it means that we are his first fruit. So brothers and sisters, resisting temptation, not allowing our desires to conceive into sin, begins with an honest look at ourselves, examining ourselves where, and to see where desire lurks and gives birth to sin. So how do we change our sinful desires or our sinful appetites? It's to desire what God desires. And as the psalmist says that we are to delight ourselves 
in the Lord. And He will give us the desires of our heart. And the reason that's true is the more that we delight in Him, the more that we desire His good gifts. So that's how we change our sinful desires and appetites, is to, um, is to experience intimacy with Him, time in His Word, uh, time in prayer with Him, time with His body. The more we delight in the Lord, the more aligned our desires will be with His. And as that happens, He will give us the desires of our hearts. I want to close with Lamentations 3, 21 through 24. And if you remember the first part of Lamentations, he's lamenting trial after trial after trial. And then he stops in his tracks and he says this, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Church, do you believe it? Is our Creator, the one that created you to be loved by Him, to be in a relationship with Him, to spend eternity with Him, is He enough? Is He your soul, delight, and joy? Would you pray with me? Father, we bless you that you are such a patient God. That you knew that um, when you, Lord Jesus, that when you would um, live the perfect life and um, die the horrible death and to rise victoriously from the grave and now reign at the right hand of the Father, um, you knew that we would still be tempted to sin. I thank you that you gave us the helper, even though this passage didn't talk about the helper, but I thank you for that reality, God, that, that we've been um, sealed uh, by a sign, and that sign is the Holy Spirit, a reminder that we belong to you, a reminder to, to us that, um, that, we, uh, that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, that we don't have to sin. And God, I pray that we would be so in awe of our salvation, so in awe of the fact that we are your prized possessions, not as a result of anything that we have done, but by your grace and mercy. We'd be so in awe that, God, that we would want to go daily on a scavenger hunt of our hearts and asking you, God, to search us, to know us, to try us, to expose any evil way in us. God, so that we can experience a deeper level of intimacy with you and we can experience maximum joy and happiness in this life because of our relationship with you. So God, thank you for your patience with us. I thank you for um, uh, the hope that we have in you. And I thank you for this uh, remarkable book of James. God, that really, really is a mirror unto our own hearts. We love you. We thank you that you love us more. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.